Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. Thomas Jefferson once described America as the empire of liberty. Today, many would argue, I think, that America focuses far too much on the empire part and not nearly enough on the liberty. Others, notably the neoconservatives of the second Bush administration, have argued that actually the American military is the greatest force for good in the world and that it should spread peace and liberty by the sword. So today, we're pleased to welcome back Cato's own Director of Defense and Foreign Policy, Chris Preble. Um, his new book, Peace, War, and Liberty, Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy, explores the intersection of U.S. foreign policy and liberal values. And so he looks at whether the U.S. has been a force for liberty in the world, whether our foreign policy has impacted liberty here at home, and what a libertarian foreign policy might look like in practice. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. So I thought we might start our discussion this week of the news by talking about Iran, since it is the news story that is sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Um, And so I guess we could start by talking a little about how things have developed over the last couple of weeks. We've seen intelligence suggesting that uh, perhaps the Iranians are escalating on the military front in the region. And we've also seen some attacks on pipelines and tankers in the region. How do you guys interpret this? Well, I think that the the simplest explanation may be that there's tension on both sides has been for many, many years, but the decision by the Trump administration to withdraw from the JCPOA a year ago, um, I think we were waiting for the other shoe to drop, the other shoe to drop drop being the Iranians' response. Uh, I think in terms of the latest intelligence, if if it's to be believed, it could certainly be explained by the classic security dilemma, which is that what looks like aggressive uh, intent um, from one person's perspective, looks like defensive preparations or anticipating an imminent attack on the other. And I, I think, again, it's sort of useful to just sort of remain agnostic in terms of who's doing what to whom, um, because ultimately in, an, in a low threat or in a, in a high tension environment, the, t- the danger is that um, small incidents become big ones. And I think that that's what's sucked the life out of or sucked the oxygen out of the room for the last week is uh, loose talk of large new military deployments to the region um, tends to concentrate uh, people's attention a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> when the uh, most recent bit of intel is your own president tweeting over the weekend that, you know, Iran will end, officially end. I think it's like there's, I didn't know you could officially end as as what the options were there. I don't know, but, um, but that's troubling. And I think, you know, as our last guest on this podcast discussed with us, um, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks could be the administration's effort to start building the justification, the foundation of a, an explanation for why they had to attack Iran. And so, you know, I just have a blog post up this morning asking sort of what are the chances that the United States is going to end up in a conflict with Iran. And at the moment, I still think it's less than 50 percent. But over the weekend, after I had written it, I think the chances rose a couple of ticks because of the sort of things that Trump said. And Chris, just like you said, I think the more sort of hot rhetoric you have, um, just the more likely that the crisis is to escalate. So a little troubling. Yeah. Okay. So let's come back to this question of troop deployments to the region, because I think this gets at one of the bigger questions here, which is what the administration's goals actually are. So I've heard a whole bunch of theories ranging from the administration wants a new Iraq war and they're trying to lay the groundwork for it 
to um, summon the administration most notably John Bolton, are hoping to sort of stumble into an escalation. There's some in the administration that seem to want to actually negotiate some replacement to the JCPOA, whether it's just a, you know, the same thing but with different language or something different, and they think this maximum pressure campaign will do it. Um, and, and then there's there's some people arguing that just the administration has absolutely no idea what it's doing. It's just sort of escalating and, and blindly moving onwards. I mean, what do you guys think? Where on the spectrum are we? Well, I think if you look at the the 12 demands that uh, Pompeo issued last year, right after the pulling out of the JCPOA, I, I think the administration's position is still those same 12 demands. You meet these 12 demands and, and we, you know, and then the maximum pressure will be lifted. Um, many people have pointed out, I think correctly, that any country that had, that had agreed to anything like those 12 demands is effectively handing over its sovereign sovereignty completely. And so it, it amounts to, it does amount to regime change, even though, though maybe the people are reluctant to call it that. Um, I'm a little bit less concerned, or I, I will say this, I think the difficulty that the Trump administration has encountered already in terms of the pushback to suggestions of Iraq redux, that is building the case for war with Iraq, they've gotten a lot of pushback on that. And I think it tells you just how far we have come as a country uh, in terms of a president actually making the affirmative case for preventive war, for initiating conflict. But that doesn't give me much comfort knowing that the likelihood of a of a, an incident becoming a war and therefore our behavior being seen as reactive and not precipitating that's the part that concerns me yeah and i would say emma in in response to your question yes <laughs> all, all of those things probably are i think one of the things we learned you know through eventual excavation of the decision to go to war in iraq in 2003 is that all of those reasons like all the reasons you could come up with were part of the reason and that administration officials actually never fully agreed on what the right weighting of those was. Mm -hmm. But the common denominator is that war served many interests. And so in this case, you know, I think probably a majority of administration players will sign up for, for several of those things that you listed, like, you know, better JCPOA if it's possible. I think they all want that. Uh, to contain Iran in the region, they all want that. To, you know, exert American dominance over, you know, things going on in Yemen and other places and, and you know, at the expense of Iran, I think they all want that. I, the, I think the really important question yet is how many of them want the war regime change. Regime change, right. You know, and, and how many, maybe they all want that, but how many of them are willing to do it the way Bolton wants to clearly do it? And I think there, you, Trump has not been convinced, it seems to me, and this is the reason I still have the below 50% forecast. But, but you know, again, I don't, Trump is so um, mercurial that I don't know what the heck it means when he says things. And I also don't think that he could, given his, you know, stuff he said publicly, I don't think he can avoid doing something if Iran does another rash thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's also on the question of regime change, right? There's a question of how you do regime change because Pompeo has been particularly keen on this. I think this idea of regime change from within mm -hmm. that we've talked about on the podcast before, and it's a fairly nonsensical proposition, but it's basically the idea that if they put enough economic pressure on the Iranian people, that they'll somehow they'll rise up and they'll they'll overthrow up. their government. Right. And that's regime change. And so, you know, I think there's the traditional sort of Bolton hawks where we go in with cruise missiles in the administration. And then you replace them with the MEK. I mean, again, this is the model that, <laughs> that this is the model that does look like Iraq is uh -huh. that is that the MEK, for example, is holding itself out as the next legitimate ruler of Iran. And so if you have people believing that you can plug and play a new 
friendly regime, then that's what tempts people to attempt regime change, even though our, our experience should have taught us many times over uh, that that plug and play simply doesn't work. There's also been some some interesting um, the the son of the former Shah of Iran, Reza Pahlavi, who's uh, I guess Reza Pahlavi Jr. in America. He would be, um, but he's been doing the rounds, uh, speaking to sort of influential American Iranian American groups, and also meetings at various think tanks here in Washington. So again, there's some suspicion there that okay. he could be being groomed for this, which is a little the wild. tone deafness of that is just off the chart. Mm -hmm. Oh my lord. <laughs> okay, so before before we move on, though, let's take one step back, push aside sort of the current tensions of, of this week or 10-day period, and talk about the broader context. Because this all basically kicked off in response to an Iranian announcement on the one-year anniversary of Trump pulling out of the JCPOA. And the Iranians basically said, to paraphrase, we're not going to start violating the deal today, but we're going to take steps. We're not going to ship out all the uranium that we're done with. Um, we might consider enriching to higher levels in the future. So basically, we will violate the deal at some point in the future. And they issued an ultimatum to particularly the European states that if, the, if, that if Iran doesn't see some sanctions relief, the JCPOA will be over. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, that moving forward, even aside from the military tensions, that's the interesting question. Where do we go from here? Right. And the Trump administration effectively said that if Iran did what they said they were going to do, that is the new red line. So in other words, they've, they've moved the goalposts again. And so it is making a move in the direction of someday being able to reconstitute a nuclear program is suddenly is now the new standard, which to me, again, is, is a standard that's too high to expect a, you know, a country to, to comply with. Yeah, this this is just, you know, justifying war in advance. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think the Trump administration should be taken seriously by Iran or anyone else at this point. But it's hard for me to understand. Is this one of those literally just, not seriously parts or seriously yeah, not literally? I, I, yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you pull out of a deal and then you get mad that the other team stops obeying by the deal that doesn't exist. What what kind of logic is this? It makes no sense right. at all. Right. Of course, the other parties to the deal say that just because the United States pulled out doesn't mean the deal is dead. In fact, they've tried to make that argument repeatedly. But to, but the Iranians' point is that if, if the pain that we are suffering economically, which was supposed to be relieved by virtue of us joining the JCPA, this is why the pressure is ironically on the Europeans, perhaps more than anybody else, to actually deliver. And I don't think they're going to be able to do it. I or at least I, I haven't been convinced that they will yet. Totally agree. And I, I mean, the thing that I, you know, when I was thinking through this, I, I just come back to what the heck is Iran thinking? I mean, I, I ask that of the Trump administration all the time. But in this case, if you're facing down the Trump administration right now, if you're Iran, do you what leverage do you think you really have here? I mean, like the Europeans want to save the JCOPA, but not at the expense of their economies and their relationship with the U.S., and Iran clearly doesn't have any leverage with the United States. Oh, you know, stand back or we'll uh, keep exiting the JCPA that you just ripped up. I mean, uh, Iran is just risking war at this point. Right. But but the but precisely for those reasons, that's why the Trump administration believes that they can get a better deal by exerting leverage and then getting the, the, the Iranians to come back to the table and negotiate a better deal. I don't think that's likely to happen. But I think that this what you're saying about in terms of the perception of who has leverage over who is why the Trump administration, or at least some members of the Trump administration, still may believe that negotiations in the future are possible. 
Yeah, and the Chinese, interestingly enough, did start sanctions busting over the weekend. Mm. They they're accepting a, a tanker full of Iranian oil, <clears throat> um, which will be the first sanctions yeah. busting move. A so, bank shot in the trade war with China and the U.S. Love it. <laughs> a, a reminder, perhaps, that issues in foreign policy are linked yes, together; yes. they're not independent. <laughs> so, with that said, let's move on to our main topic for the day and step back from sort of the current burning crises here in Washington and and talk a little more about the principles and philosophical ideals that underlie sort of how we think about foreign policy. And so you wrote uh, your book, it's just out, it's called Peace, War and Liberty. Um, you can find it on the Cato website and elsewhere. Um, but I thought you might like to start by talking a little about why you wanted to write the book. Sure. Thanks, Emma. And I really appreciate you guys having me on the show. I mean, I, I think that I was approached several years ago by Aaron Powell, who heads up libertarianism.org, and Grant Babcock, who also is is responsible for the books at Libertarianism. And they said, look, I think we need a book on libertarian foreign policy. Um, and on the one hand, of course, I feel having worked at a libertarian think tank for 16 years that I know what a libertarian foreign policy is, but I'm also, um, I think, acutely aware of the fact that most people don't. Um, and so the purpose, to be perfectly blunt, is is to explain it, is to explain what libertarian foreign policy means. Um, part of that is sort of differentiating what we're for as opposed to what we're against. Here at the Cato Institute, we have made a reputation, I think correctly, for being skeptical of military intervention. And the reason why is is one of the critical elements of libertarian foreign policy, which is uh, that um, that uh, f sort of the non-aggression principle or elements of non-intervention that uh, uh, war is the health of the state, and that therefore there's a particular burden uh, uh, that we believe that people making the case for war have to meet a certain threshold that often U.S. wars don't meet that threshold, where you have a big hammer and everything looks like a nail, as my last book talked about. But I think equally important in this book is talking about the importance of trade and diplomacy and cultural exchange, which we, the United States, we Americans excelled at for a good part of our history, and yet we've sort of lost sight of it over the last quarter century, precisely because the military instrument seems so, um, well, it's uniquely available to uh, presidents uh, in ways that other tools uh, are not so easily wielded. Yeah, and, and actually I think that provides a really good lead into the start of the book because you're a historian by trade, um, and a sizable chunk of the book is actually talking about the history of U.S. foreign policy um, rather than just current what's going on today. So perhaps you could go through that a little for us. Sure. How does history shape how we understand U.S. foreign policy in this context? Well, in this case, I mean, I, I could just say self-servingly, I'm a historian. I like writing about history and I enjoyed writing this part of the book. But I also think there's an instrumental purpose here because um, the United States for at least half of its history was dedicated to principles of uh, trade and and cultural exchange and diplomacy and very skeptical of warfare. It's informed by things like Washington's farewell address or John Quincy Adams' speech of July 4th, 1821. Um, these addresses and speeches were read, have been read uh, you know, out loud on July 4th or at various stages, and they really did inform U.S. foreign policy up to and through uh, the end of the 19th century. One of the pivot points, I think, in American history and in American foreign policy uh, was uh, the war with Spain, the war that ultimately begot the United States, uh, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines, and 
our special relationship with Cuba, shall we call it that? So there was a, a, a real transition, I think, at the turn of the, of the 20th century where the United States became more uh, comfortable with, with traditional imperialism. Uh, and so the second half of the historical part talks about the transformation from there and the lessons that were taken away from the First and Second World Wars and how the U.S. national security straight grew and became permanent. And so I think that historical background is, is helpful for reminding people that while the recent past looks like we're always using the military and we always have been, uh, there was a different model that worked for us for a good part of our history and I think ultimately uh, still could. So... I want to play devil's advocate here for a moment because I think there is another way you can look at this, right? Um, you could say that the U.S. military has been a force for advancing liberal values around the world. And that does go all the way back in history. You go, you go back and you look at what Thomas Jefferson was saying right around the time of the founding. And he believed that. He believed that the U.S. should be, say, helping the revolutionaries in France in their own revolution in their attempt to achieve principles of liberty. So there's always been this argument for a more activist foreign policy and support of liberty around the world. Mm -hmm. um, or perhaps if I could just borrow from pop culture for a second, um, is Daenerys Targaryen right that we should be <laughs> imposing liberty and freedom by the sword around the world? Right. Um, I think that what we see in, in the actual the way that these debates played out over the course of American history is there were always skeptics. There were always skeptics here in the United States uh, who would hearken back to the reasons why the founders put limits on this on the government in the first place. And that's because a large state, a state that grows larger because of war, is a threat to liberty. And so some of the best and most sort of convincing, in my mind, arguments against imperialism, U.S. imperialism, is precisely that, that it was changing not the character of other states, but the character of this state. And by changing the character of this state, we then became less capable uh, as a model for others and people. And so while it's true that we could go to the to the pattern of trying to impose these ideas uh, by force as opposed to by example, uh, what we've seen, I think, in more recent years is that resistance to foreign imposition of ideals which we believe in um, doesn't work very well. And so um, well, I, you're absolutely right, Emma. There, there have been various stages throughout the course of American history where people have made the case for the United States to intervene in foreign conflicts. Uh, but there have always been counter arguments, and those counter arguments, unfortunately, have become quite muted uh, in the last, uh, you know, in my lifetime. Yeah. So just to sort of follow up on that, I mean, I I think a lot of people uh, who who we run into, Cato folks run into out in arguments in the public, uh, is you know, as Emma was suggesting that you know it was actually U.S. foreign policy imposing you know, values imposing, you know, the presence of military forces abroad during the Cold War that that preserved freedom or helped spread democracy. Uh, you know, was that true for a time? Um, or, you know, or, or is that sort of easy narrative about we won the Cold War wrong? I certainly think it's true that had the had World War II ended differently than it did, um, uh, that the experience of sort of liberty in Europe um, would have looked differently. And so I, I think we as libertarians can candidly admit that U.S. involvement in World War II and the nature in which it played out and then the, the U.S. involvement in the Cold War uh, helped preserve uh, freedom in Western Europe at least because Western Europe was facing down this giant 
rapacious, you know, powerful army in Eastern Europe. And so I talk about that. I think, I think that the motivations between, behind U.S. policy, especially in Europe, um, can be justified um, on, on libertarian liberal grounds. The problem is that, well, that leaves out a lot of the rest of the world. And in a lot of the rest of the world, the competition with the Soviet Union involved, frankly, subverting liberty as often as promoting it because we picked our preferred people at the expense of their preferred people. It was a zero-sum game. And we could always justify it by saying, well, whatever system the Soviet client would put in place is worse for liberty. And sometimes that was probably true, but it wasn't always true. Um, and it wasn't always true that there was, and most importantly, it wasn't always true that it was a zero-sum game. And that was the part that we sort of convinced ourselves that if, you know, that either our guy wins or the other guy, you know, is much worse. So that's, and again, I'm not the first person to talk about that. Ted Galen Carpenter's written at least two books on the topic. And I think it's, you know, that's a lot of what I used in terms of the material for that part of the book, Forcing Freedom. Um, I also think that it's important for when we talk about this to audiences, especially audiences that are not necessarily libertarian in their mindset, is we we have to allow for the possibility that people are genuinely trying to do things for the right set of reasons. <laughs> I certainly believe that. I think that that a lot of the motivations were uh, grounded in in you know real principles. It wasn't just a sham. Um, but they did, but we also need to measure the effects of policy by the by the results, not just by the intent. Uh, and that's the part I think. That, and we do that I think in domestic policy. I think we need to do exactly the same thing in foreign policy. Well, actually, I'd like to bring it back to that uh, second part. You mentioned it earlier. You mentioned domestic policy and how war and intervention and activism overseas changes the nature of the state and how we relate to it here at home. And that's something that I think a lot of libertarians talk about all the time, but it really doesn't make it into foreign policy debates more generally. No, because partly because it's sort of baked into the cake, right? So the national security uh, infrastructure system that we know today, um, and you know, virtually no one has a memory of what it was like uh, before, uh, you know, before World War II, right? And so the notion that the United States would have uh, maintain a small permanent military uh, and use it rarely uh, is so foreign uh, to us. Uh, we don't we don't remember what it was like, um, and I I think that. Because we've sort of grown accustomed to this national security state, we we become sort of blind, or at least sort of don't don't see the signs in which this enormous national security state state has contributed to the growth of the rest of the state, the warfare welfare state, if you want to use it in those terms. Um, so you're absolutely right, Emma. I think that that most people don't think of the fact that we have a huge military spread around the world as having any relationship whatsoever to the fact that we have an enormous federal government. But in fact, the two things are interrelated and, and the founders anticipated that. They knew that was likely to happen. And I think one of the things that, you know, jumps out at me, you know, from that that discussion is is also the the, you know, just incredible dominance of the president these right. days, specifically in not just foreign policy, of course, but in everything. And that was just not the way the founders saw this going. Yeah, that's right. Madison once said that the clause of the Constitution that vested the war powers with Congress was the most important of the entire document. And he wrote many times over eloquently about how important it was for the Congress, for the Constitution maintaining a balance between the branches and especially on foreign policy. The executive branch was the one most prone to war and therefore the one most needing 
the check from Congress. There were even moments early in his career when, when Madison argued on behalf of con congressional interference, even when his own president would have benefited from more deference. Uh, now, at other stages, he wasn't as consistent, and so he was a typical politician in that sense. But I think in terms of the way that he designed the system and the way it worked in the early stages, uh, there was much more uh, of an understanding that that presidents would defer to Congress on matters of war and peace. And it happened from time to time, of course, over the course of the 19th century. Look, when a president doesn't have an army to speak of and he wants to wage a war, he has to raise the army to fight it. Um, and occasionally presidents were able to do that. They were able to go to Congress and said, this is why we need to raise an army to fight this the war. And and it happened. And then then the force went back down to its small uh, state that it was was intended. Uh, and and we, we have no memory of that because the because the permanent military is now established as a as a kind of bedrock principle of U.S. Uh, policy. Well, so I guess perhaps that's the thing that we should talk about next, because history is very well, it's useful for understanding how we got here, but we are where we are today. The U.S. has a large standing military. There's no prospect that's going to change, um, certainly not in our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes. Um, and the national security state is here to stay. So in the, the sort of the second half of the book, I think you basically talk more about what a libertarian foreign policy would look like if we tried to actually do it in practice. Right. Um, and how does that, I guess, how does that differ from that historical vision? I think that by virtue of our size and wealth, um, the United States is going to have a military and it's going to be more active than other countries' militaries with two critical sort of, you know, sort of things that I think we should keep in mind. One, geography still matters and the fact that we have friendly neighbors to the north and south and fish to the east and west is an advantage for the United States of America and we too often sort of ignore that. We, we pretend that the geography doesn't matter. That's a problem. The second problem is um, we we allow too much sort of deference to the inertia of the national security state. And so it's while it's all well and good to say that we're going to have a permanent military, it wasn't realistic to think that, you know, that we would go back to the way it was in the 19th century. I still believe there are important changes to the character of that military and the disposition of that military that are that would not be a sort of wholesale rejection of the idea that the United States would have a large and active, powerful military. For example, um, the, the need for a permanent large army deployed to a considerable extent forward, that is outside of the United States of America, if we were to move to a more um, uh, CONUS-based force, especially land force that is here in the United States, then you wouldn't need to rely as heavily on an active duty army. You could rely more on reservists and guard to, to augment the force in the times of genuine distress. One other quick point, we haven't mentioned it yet, the Navy, my former institution and a place that I still have a soft spot in my heart for, the Constitution allows for a standing Navy that was not a, they made a distinction. And so the notion that we would have, we as a maritime power would have a Navy and that that Navy would go about, that is fully consistent with the Constitution. But even here, I don't think it's, it's appropriate necessarily to equate 
um, to be provocative, to equate the South China Sea with the Caribbean. Those are two different bodies of water, and they have different levels of importance to the United States of America. Um, and so um, what I'd like to see, and I don't get into this so much in the book because I don't talk so much about, about force structures I did in my past books, uh, but the notion of many countries with navies working together to deal with common challenges, that's something that I think is, is fully consistent with a libertarian foreign policy. Yeah. No, it sounds good. So basically smaller, less active, less forward deployed Correct. is what I'm hearing. Yes. And what about, um, I think libertarians uh, often also wonder about you know, the role of foreign aid, um, economic engagement, other sources of diplomacy. How, you know, how much should the United States be involved in international institutions and stuff like that? Right. Those are all great questions. I think I, I talk about it mostly in the context of trade because I see the importance and the value of international institutions that regulate international trade. I believe that the ability of countries to trade with one another for companies to find buyers and and sellers, uh, you know, all those things are facilitated by freer, flatter trade. Um, we should aspire to that. Um, these institutions can help because when countries agree to abide by rules and violate them, there are there are penalties. And and so I, I do worry, I mean, very specifically, I worry what, for example, the Trump administration is doing in a, in a fairly systematic way to gut the WTO's rules for, um, for adjudicating disputes and, and moving towards or trying to move towards a much more bilateral, um, you know, um, way to negotiate trade policy, which I think ultimately isn't to our benefit or to, you know, the benefit of sort of human prosperity and liberty, which I also care about. So, so I do see the value of these institutions, um, and, and I don't think it requires us to take a go-it-alone sort of approach by any stretch. I just don't think that's realistic or, or wise. So we have had several discussions on this podcast over the last couple of years um, about the future of U.S. foreign policy and in particular on how it looks for the different political parties. So we've had people on talking about progressive or liberal uh, democratic foreign policy, liberal in a different sense. And we've had people on talking about conservative foreign policy and conservative foreign policy in the era of Trump. Um, would you like to talk a little about how your vision for foreign policy sort of compares and contrasts here? Because I think there's some similarities on both sides, and then there's some areas where you would differ. Sure. I think that, um, first of all, we here at Cato are accustomed to people saying, well, which are you, conservative or liberal? And the answer is neither. And I think that's especially the case in foreign policy. I think there are certain elements of our approach to foreign policy starting with our embrace of peace as a sort of core principle um, that's sort of, you know, that's sort of elemental. Uh, and, and both conservatives and liberals, for different sets of reasons, find reasons to make exceptions uh, for, um, you know, for for peace, they, you know, they want they want to make the case for why intervention is warranted or necessary or appropriate on either moral or or, or philosophical grounds. So that's where I think we do differ. I also think that some of I think I think mostly it becomes very partisan, right? Is that there's a particular reason why Donald Trump hated the 
uh, Iran nuclear deal. It's because it was Obama's deal. And so undoing Obama's foreign policy is a, it can go a long way to explaining President Trump's behavior as president. I worry that the next president, if the next president is a Democrat, will replay that in reverse and just say, well, we're going to undo everything President Trump did because those are clearly you know, inappropriate and we get very partisan and it gets very sort of well, frankly, it's just not very constructive. And meanwhile, the rest of the world looks at the United States and figures out that there is no continuity or sort of principles undergirding U.S. foreign policy. And there's a, there's a reasonable, you know, uh, explanation or a reasonable, I think it's reasonable to think that they might just want to go their own way. They're not just waiting for the United States to sort of be there for them. Uh, and again, there are parts of me that say that wouldn't be such a horrible thing. Um, but I, I think that's what frustrates me the most about the last uh, eight or ten years is the is the extent to which and partisans infected partisanship has infected everything else in this country. So why would it leave foreign policy alone? Um, is that you know if someone makes a decision that is that is con, you know on the surface consistent with your philosophical principles principles, but he or she is on the other team, then you change your principles. And that's the part that frustrates me the most. And that's the part that I think I think Cato has done, I think, a fairly good job of remaining true to our principles despite the partisan uh, wins. It turns out it helps not to have a party, basically. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, uh, you know, I, I sense, uh, and tell me if you agree, that that despite not having a party, the principles that, that Cato folks have been arguing for for a long time have have gained some traction. Yes, they don't always get expressed in the actual policies, but I do sense that, especially on the progressive side these days, that there's there's more traction with restraint-oriented ideas than maybe ever before. Yes, and I think that's especially true with respect to the use of force. I think that, and I think we have seen a generational shift, which I've learned mostly from you, Trevor. So, so I think that the generation of of Americans who have grown up um, and come to adulthood since 9-11, since the wars that have been fought after 9-11, and, and sort of a, a, a very little sort of, st sort of stunning, unadulterated victories or successes that were delivered by military means has caused them to question whether or not the military is that effective an instrument after all. None of this should surprise us. Um, now, the other side would say, well, you're not seeing stunning successes, but you're also not seeing, you know, sort of catastrophic failures. And therefore, this is the best we can do. We're just tending the garden and this is what you do. This is, you know, you go out and fight these wars. But I but I think it's very different from the experience of the greatest generation or even the baby boomers, notwithstanding Vietnam, the baby boomers at least could remember or be told relatively freshly the U.S. victory in World War II and the success of the Cold War. So they could point to successes that were achieved, they thought, principally by military means. And I think that the, that the questioning the utility of force as an instrument of policy is fully consistent with libertarian foreign policy and is rising in popularity among people who do not think of themselves as libertarians. But again, this is where I have to pivot. It is equally important, therefore, because we're there's a moment in time where we do have to make a case for trade and diplomacy and exchange, peaceful exchange. Uh, and and I th again, I think there is a possibility of attracting um, progressives and some even on the conservative right to this message, uh, but it's not going to happen, you know, by itself. It's it's going to have to be. It's going to have to require some some work and some education. And that's well, candidly, that's why we're here. 
And I think that's a fairly positive note to end on here because, you know, even from sort of my own time at Cato as a relative outsider, I see not just in foreign policy, but that there are quite a lot of issue areas where libertarian ideas are starting to gain traction, just not necessarily among people that would call themselves libertarians. And right. so even if it's not necessarily libertarians, that's still a hopeful thing, I think, as we move forward. Hopeful. <laughs> so uh, that is all we have time for today. Um, thanks to everybody for listening at home. And thank you, Chris, for joining us. The book is Peace, War and Liberty, Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy. Um, and thank you to our producer, Cecil Sherman. And we will see you all next time on Power Problems. <laughs> <laughs>